Welcome back to Faith Radio Mornings for the 5th of December here. We're chatting with Bill English of BibleandBusiness.com. And Bill, when you sent me some of the information to chat about this morning, you referenced that, yes, the topic itself is important, but what the topic represents really goes to the heart of what you care about at BibleandBusiness.com. So tell us a little bit more about that. It is. It's all about stewardship of your business for the purposes of expanding and growing and furthering the kingdom of God on this earth. I, I purport or I propose <clears throat> that if uh, if a guy or a gal really wants to get involved, be at the at the ground zero of furthering the kingdom of God, start a business. Mm. And the reason for that is because once you have started a business and you have a successful business, you now have been given an entrustment by God to steward that business. Two talents, five talents, ten talents in the Luke 19 sense, right, right? Right, To steward that business to further the kingdom of God, not to further your own uh, financial ends. And so, you know, there isn't one church, there isn't one ministry, there isn't one parachurch organization, there isn't one Christian college. Mm. There, Nobody, none of these ministries exist without profitable businesses. Yeah. You have to have a profitable business behind it. And so if you want to be at ground zero of ministry, go start a business. Now, you at the Platinum Group have worked, obviously, with many businesses over the years. Yeah, we have. Is this a, what would you say is sort of a percentage-wise, or do you see this pretty common, that business leaders have this kind of perspective, even Christian business leaders? No. Is, so tell us more no. about that. No, most Christian business owners know that they're good for writing the check at church, and they write checks to other ministries, and they usually, God usually knits their hearts with a particular ministry or series or group of ministries, and that's what they give to. In my mind, that's the outcome is there, but they don't consciously understand the the uh, br- the breadth and the depth of their stewardship responsibilities before the Lord. Look, there's according to the Census Bureau, there's only about six million businesses in the United States, and uh, uh, roughly only. 18,000 of them have 500 or more employees, about another 110,000 have between 100 and 500 employees. The rest of them are 100 employees and under. Hmm. And when you look at that group, when, when, when you look at that group of 6 million businesses, I'm going to guess that 2 million of them are owned by Christians. I'm just guessing because sure. there's no stats on this, sure. right? So I'm going to guess that 2 million of them are owned by businesses. You divide that by 3,300 counties, you're in about 50 to 75 per county in the United States. Those are the businesses that support all of our ministries, mm. all it- of our ministries. And that's significant when it comes to the ideas. I was talking with Galen Carey last hour a little bit about a tax levied on churches, that if the federal government gets involved in taxing churches and nonprofits, then we're talking about what you described as the funding power for so many of these churches and and nonprofits is coming from private capital, private business, and suddenly the government is involved in a different way on some of that. It's probably just a mistake on somebody's part when they wrote the bill, quite honestly, yeah. they, they, because our, our, our laws are so complex and so intertwined. I think it's tough to write a bill that isn't in conflict with another bill in one form or fashion. Mm-hmm. I, I don't know that there's a nefarious intent there on the part of either Republicans or Democrats. Yeah, that's good. I'm curious, too, what you would say when business owners are thinking about the use of cash and capital, and it's not just writing a check for a church and sort of wiping our hands of it. I know my roommate and I that I uh, roomed with for three years at university back in the day, we had one of those typical 20-year-old kinds of conversations in which we kicked around almost the entire evening the question, can a Christian own a BMW? And so one one of the questions that I have is for a business leader, how did they 
balance the the use of cash for their own needs? I mean, is a Honda enough? Is a to you know used Toyota Camry enough? Uh, can they have it be? Into, should they be giving all their money to organizations? Do you have any suggestions along these lines, Bill? I do. Live at the mean of your community. Live at the say, say more about that. Live at the mean of your community. It's it's the same way we decide how do we pay pastors. You pay pastors in one of three ways. Either you uh, you take the elder board salaries, average them, pay the pastor that, hmm. or you go to the uh, census and you find out what a person with a master's degree, most of them have MDivs, yep. and and, and you, what does a person with a three-year master's degree make in this community, pay them that, okay? Third way is call around to all the churches and you find out what their pastors make, average it, pay them that. Seems to me that a business owner finds himself in a Maple Grove where I live <clears throat> or finds himself in a Wasika or finds himself in Hartford, Connecticut, wherever it is, What's the mean, the median, in other words, the middle of the road living standard, that's where the business owner should live. Yeah, money, vocation, finance, salary, all of those kinds of things get tricky when dealing with churches. And so this seems like it might be at least one suggested way to just sort of take all the starch out of that conversation and focus on the things that matter. I really like the idea of the elders saying, here's what we make and and everybody just being gut honest because money is not, in my mind, is not an assessment of one's value to the kingdom. How much money you make is really a stewardship issue. If you, Peter, if you make uh, $300,000 a year and I make $100,000 a year, I don't interpret that as you're better than me. I interpret that as you have more responsibility before the Lord than mm-hmm. I do, right? And so you just take the elder salaries, average it, pay the pastor that. Well, even though those salary numbers are just right spot on, Bill, of course, I'm still expecting you to buy my prime rib here for uh, Christmas Eve. I am going to make you the best prime rib you've ever had. (laughs) I love it. Talking to Bill Bill English of BibleandBusiness.com. And I think we have some interesting news for you relative to your favorite Christmas song. Oh, what's that? Here, Bill. Well, you know, we were kind of giving Rachel Sutton a little bit of grief for being on point, but not knowing this whole Christmas. Well, I had to give her the title off air. Well, here we go. Let's listen to Bill English's favorite Christmas song, which is titled, I Wish I Was Back in the Army. was mustered out, well, I thought without a doubt, Ho-ho. that I was through with all my care and strife, well, I thought that I was then, the happiest of men, but after months of tough civilian life, gee, I wish I was back in the army, the army wasn't really bad at all, three meals a day, three for which you didn't pay, a thrill of hope. The weary world rejoices for yonder breaks a new and glorious morn. And of course, that is the music of Oh Holy Night. And Bill, that uh, that helps cleanse the palate a little bit after your choice of music on the. You know, we've we've been having these <laughs> sacred moments of songs. We've been reading from Isaiah nine this morning. We've been celebrating the birth of the King, and suddenly I'm dancing around wishing I was part of the army. So I appreciate. It sounds like Oh Holy Night is, is, is another actually, one that might actually rank as a favorite of yours. In all seriousness, that is my favorite uh, Christmas hymn because it is so worshipful. Fall on your knees, oh, you know, let hear the angels' yeah. voices, 
you know, it's uh, a it's a very powerful sign. That there's a, there's a theological depth and richness of oh, that I that know, I think is really I profound. I know I'm uh, interviewing for a taped interview later today, Andrew Peterson, singer songwriter, and he brings that kind of substance and depth and richness into the music. And there's something just really anchoring that we're part of a story that has been going on for thousands of years, and it's the story that really knows no end. And, and in all of the trouble and and turmoil of today, that's one of those things that really anchors us to who we really are. You know, the older hymns are so rich theologically. Yeah. And many of the choruses we now sing in church are really thin yeah. theologically, and uh, uh, some of them are just wrong mm. theologically. Yeah. And, and so I, I wish that we would go not back to the hymns, but we would figure out a way to make this generation aware of the hymns. I actually sit because we never sing hymns at my church right. ever. Right. And so <clears throat> I sometimes sit by myself in my devotional time in the morning, and I have a hymnal, and I sing some of these hymns. Because they're just so rich. Yeah, you, you referenced the theological depth of some of the hymns and the traditions. It was coming at a time in which it wasn't business mixing with music. And so, so much of the music these days is being released to make a living and business. But when you read the hymns of the past, it was being birthed out of a, a theological conviction of a sense of who God was. And I think that's part of why there's such richness in some of that music. I would agree. So I know that one of the topics that we wanted to get into this morning a little bit that I was a little surprised by when you're dealing with businesses and startups, and I, I would have thought the average age for starting a business and being an entrepreneurial uh, entrepreneurial person would be at an early age when it, it makes some sense, supposedly, to take a financial risk. And so I have a picture of the Stanford dropout sitting in their garage trying to put together <laughs> some sort of technological innovation that's going to rock the world, but it sure sounds like uh, the most successful entrepreneurs come at a much later age. And that's because they've been in business for a while they've made some mistakes mm. so when they branch out they know what not to do and they also know what to do and so you the average age of the of a successful entrepreneur is 45 according to this article that I that I read yesterday uh, and I've read other articles that even peg that in the early 50s so the really the the right time to start a business is probably late 30s to early 50s after you have been around the block a couple of times in business and you've seen what works and what doesn't work and you are a little, little bit more mature so the dollars don't impress you okay so let's say let's say you want to start a, a subway shop yeah a subway sandwich shop yep. right you're probably going to spend i'm guessing seventy five hundred thousand dollars for the license you're probably going to spend another thirty to fifty thousand to outfit the store and then you're probably going to need working capital for six months to a year until it starts to cash flow so you might need three hundred thousand all yeah. told three hundred fifty makes right? sense yep okay uh, you can't be impressed by that. You mm. can't be impressed by that number. It has to just be a number on a page, and you're working with it uh, in order to make a long-term goal happen. And so if you're going to start a manufacturing company, you may need several million of investment. You can't be impressed by the dollars. You just have to work with the numbers. Yeah, there's certainly a maturity level that comes with that. I think my son has been texting me this morning, my 19-year-old, and $50 to him would be an unbelievable windfall at this point. And so the, the prospect of $300,000 really seems daunting, I think, to many of us. We just never yeah. considered these kind of numbers. How <clears throat> how does somebody who maybe was laid off from their job, maybe unanticipatedly, maybe doesn't have a lot of rainy day fund in their bank account, how do they begin to generate the kind of capital you describe if they really want to do start a business? Is it securing banking funding? How, do, how does somebody go about doing this? Well, banks never start fun uh, startups. <laughs> just forget about banks start, funding startups. It, it just doesn't happen. 
or if it does, the bank probably isn't going to be around a long yeah, time. Yeah, makes sense. Uh, so you got to you got to find family, friends, angel investors, that kind of thing. You got to find people who are willing to put money into it. If it's a service-oriented business with low barriers of entry, you can go in it yourself, right? You can just start the business yourself. And you know, if your business is cleaning windows, that's not a hard thing to get started. You know, thirty bucks and you can go. If it's a manufacturing and you need five million to get it going, you're going to have to find investors. Yeah, and certainly I talk to younger people like my son that I referenced that would be interested in potentially starting a business at 19, 20, 21. What advice do you have for younger people that maybe aren't as seasoned as a 45 or 50 year old in terms of their experience in the business world? What What would you say? you need to put into place if you're going to have a sex- successful idea because many of the most innovative ideas are coming from the younger generation. The innovation may come from the younger generation, but the capital and the ability to run the business is going to come from older generations. It just is. Yeah. So my advice to a 19-year-old, your son, here's what I would tell him to do. First of all, uh, know what you really want to do and what your niche is and Bill Clinton used to say, uh, you know, stick to your knitting, right? Know what you're going to knit and stick to it, right? Yeah. Uh, secondly, um, know how to manage people. And if you don't know how to manage people, you're going to have to get somebody to do that for you. Uh, and then the third thing just left my mind, and I'm going to have to come back to it at some point. We will give you that opportunity. You know, these gaps begin to happen at our ages, doesn't it? It uh, does. I mean, that that does. word, I swear, was right there not more than a half a second ago, and suddenly it disappears into cyberspace somewhere. We're talking with Bill English of BibleandBusiness.com, and we're talking about starting up a business and, and some of the characteristics required for that. And, Bill, again, I'm, I'm a little surprised by this 45-year-old number in terms of this is when people tend to be most successful in their startups. And, and what in terms of the seasoning there and what you see, um, how do people transition from maybe being an employee of an organization for an extended period of time and think about actually being the business owner if they want to start up a business at that age? You know, one of the ways to do that is to say to the employer that, uh, uh, you know, this this part, this function that I do probably could be done better if you are outsourcing it to another business. So how about if I just go ahead and start a business and you guys are my first customer? Hmm. I've heard that more than once yeah. or more than several times. Uh, where companies actually found it cheaper to have the employees leave the company, start a business, and hire the company back, or the company hires them back as contractors. Yeah, yeah, that makes a ton of sense on that. And in terms of, um, do you feel the people that are close to you, it's probably not a great idea to get involved in a risky venture like this if you don't have the support of family and some of the close friends, because this is one of those things that it seems like could tear families apart. It could, especially at older ages. So, you know, the the optimum age, right, we said is 45 to early 50s to start a business that's successful, but you also don't have a long runway to recover financially if it doesn't go well. So you really need to know what you're doing. One of the things that I was going to mention earlier that, I've, that I couldn't remember that it's now came back to my mind <laughs> is this. Why would somebody buy from you? Yeah. Why are they going to buy from you as opposed to the other competition in town? You've got to be able to explain that, and you've got to have a compelling reason as to why your service is needed or your, your angle or something about your business is so unique that people will buy from you as opposed to somebody else. Yeah, we have just about a minute left here, here, Bill, maybe a little longer, but I think that's such an important point that you make because uh, to focus on the differentiation of what it is that you're offering is far more important than focusing on the passion that you might, you might have because your passion may not meet what is a need or a niche out all there, but you, you have to have passion for the business, of Absolutely. course. Absolutely. But it's too often, I think, people get into the business world based on a passion that they have, assuming everybody shares that passion, and then they're surprised when they don't have any success in the business. Well, 
Well, part of that is because they have such a passion for the service or the product or, or the domain of, of knowledge. They have a passion for that, but they don't have a passion for actually running the business. Yeah. And that's why you almost always need to bring somebody in to shore up the business side of your passion. Uh, I can't tell you how many business owners I've seen where that's the case. Yeah, well, it's fascinating information. This time goes so quick. It does. With you, Billy. It really does. It does. And I, maybe we'll actually start seeing each other a little bit more over I the next so. month in the Christmas time. And I know that Rachel Sutton was dying to play again what is your favorite <laughs> Christmas song, I Wish I Was Back in the Army. Here we go, Bill. Have a great uh, weekend. Hey, you too. Take care. Gee, I wish I was back in the army. The army wasn't really bad at all. Three meals a day, three for which you didn't pay. Uniforms for winter, spring, and fall. There's a lot to be said for the army.